Promises are easy to make, but they are hard to keep. And the truth is, the bigger the promise, the harder it is to keep. For example, November 1916, Woodrow Wilson was reelected president specifically under the promise that he would keep America out of war with Germany. But things change, don't they? Of course they change. They change over time, including the decision to address the joint session of the United States Congress and call for a declaration of war. Because hostilities broke out between the nations of Europe in 1914, and almost immediately President Wilson declared America's intent to stay neutral. However, that became increasingly difficult. 1915 to 1917, when German submarines were sinking American ships and killing American lives. Most notably was the Lusitania, May 7, 1915, where 128 Americans were killed. So German aggression was increasing, and every single American could feel it, which is why they were so unbelievably relieved when President Wilson ran for re-election under the promise that he would keep America out of the war with Germany. In fact, he said, and I quote, the United States must remain neutral. We must remain impartial. And we must curb all transaction that could be construed as preference towards one country over another. And he got reelected November 1916 under that promise. And yet, February 1917... So just three months later, the Germans got caught offering a deal to Mexico, specifically offering the land Mexico lost to the United States during the Mexican-American War, back to Mexico in exchange for Mexico's unwavering loyalty to the Germans. And as a result, what happened? April 2nd, 1917, President Woodrow Wilson stood before the joint session of the United States Congress and he called for a declaration of war. And he got it. So he made the promise, November 1916, which brought about incredible hope, unbelievable hope to the Americans. Hopeful to stay out of the war. Yet things changed. As they always do. Five months later, declaration of war. My point is very simple. Promises are easy to make, but they are hard to keep. But not for God. God makes incredible promises, but he always keeps his promises, which is why his promises guarantee an infinitely better hope, meaning an unwavering hope that by faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross as our great high priest, we are truly forgiven of our sin. And we can know for certain that we will dwell in God's presence for all eternity because Jesus is an eternal priest who promises that he will save us to the uttermost. That's where we're going this morning. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, towards the back of the Bible. It's on page 1004 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Let me just encourage you, if you're a guest with us this morning, to grab a Bible. I'm a Bible guy. Like, as you get to know me, I am a Bible guy. I'd encourage you to grab the Bible, page 1004, grab my outline. This is where we're going this morning. So Bible open, outline in the Bible. I'm going to show you the glorious truths that Hebrews 7 has for us. As you're turning, let me remind you, the author of Hebrews has already declared that Jesus is greater than the angels, that he's greater than Moses, that he's greater than the Old Testament priests. But this morning, he's going to argue how Jesus is an eternal high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. You're like, who's Melchizedek? Well, he's going to explain that, and he's going to tell you why that matters. So if you would, follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. The author says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, 
met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a high priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, as we jump in, our first section is titled, number one, an eternal priest. Because that's the whole point of talking about Melchizedek. If you would, just look back at chapter 6, verse 19. The author just said, We have this as a sure and steady anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become what? Having become a high priest forever, so an eternal priest, after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is our hope. Jesus is the sure and steady anchor of our souls because he enters into the holy of holies, so the place where only the great high priest can go and only once a year. So by way of analogy, Jesus is a great high priest who enters not the physical holy of holies, but the spiritual holy of holies, meaning he actually enters into the place where God dwells. And he doesn't do that just once a year, but he does that perpetually. He lives in God's presence because he's an eternal high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, who exactly is Melchizedek? Well, Hebrews 7 verses 1 to 3 gives us some pretty helpful information, doesn't it? Including the fact that verse 1 says he's priest of the most high God. Verse 2 says he's a king. It's the king of righteousness because Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. And he's king of Salem, most likely a reference to Jerusalem, which means peace. So he's king of righteousness and he's king of peace. And if that wasn't enough already, verse 3 says he's eternal. He's without father or mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Meaning we have no idea where he came from. We have no idea where he went. So if you just add up the description that we're given in those first three verses, he's priest of the most high God, he's the king of righteousness, he's the king of peace, and he's eternal. Who does that sound like to you? That sounds like Jesus to me. Where in the world does the author of Hebrews get all of this information from? Well, he tells us, doesn't he? Verse 1 says, when Melchizedek met Abraham, returning from a battle with some of the most powerful kings of his day, whom he slaughtered, and yet Abraham, verse 2, paid tithes to Melchizedek. This tithe is obviously a pretty big deal because it gets highlighted in verse 2, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 8, and verse 9. So six times in 10 verses. So it seems like something that we absolutely need to understand. And in order to understand it, we have to flip back to Genesis 14. So if you would, hold your finger here in Hebrews 7. Flip back to Genesis 14. It's on page 12. Again, if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you. Genesis 14. And as you're turning, let me remind you that Melchizedek only comes up twice in the entire Old Testament. So once in Psalm 110, which the author keeps quoting in Hebrews, that Jesus is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And the other time is Genesis 14. 
Okay, so now with regard to the context of Genesis 14, you have to understand that Abraham is returning from war when he meets Melchizedek. But this is not just any war. And it's not even a war that Abraham is directly involved in. Context is given to us in verses 1 to 10. I'm just going to summarize it for you here. Genesis 14, 1 to 10, here's the summary. So there's these four powerful kings with these massive armies. And they're traveling all the way from Babylon to pound on, beat up, defeat these five weaker kings who have these pathetic armies and they're coming to conquer them because they've not been paying their tithes. Some things never change. <laughs> and that war is over immediately because the five weaker kings don't even fight. They just run for their lives. But Abraham gets involved. Why does Abraham get involved? Well, because the four powerful kings in conquering all of this stuff also take his nephew Lot. Look at verse 11. It tells us, so the enemy, the four powerful kings, took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their possessions and went their way. They also, side note, take Lot, the son of Abram's brother and all of his possessions. So what does Abraham do? Well, he gathers an army of 318 men. That's right. You heard me correctly. 318 men who he's going to take up against these four powerful kings. And he does. They have these massive armies. He's got 318 men. And yet here he comes along and he conquers them, right? Hebrews 7.1 used the language that he slaughters them. Genesis 14 verse 16 gives us the summary. Look at what it says. Then he, Abraham, brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with all his possessions, and he brought back the women and the people. So you have to understand that. Because at this point in time, Abraham is the king of kings, right? I mean, he slaughtered the four kings who slaughtered the five kings. So with regard to all the kings that are currently exist on the face of the earth, he's the greatest of them all. Abraham is, at this point in time, the king of kings. And it's in that context that he meets Melchizedek. Verse 18 says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Where in the world does this guy come from? Nobody knows. He's not mentioned ever before in the Bible. Genesis 1 to 13 doesn't mention him at all. But here he is right after Abraham demonstrates that he's the king of kings. Yet notice what we're told. He's priest of God most high. And look at what happens. He, Melchizedek, blesses him, Abraham, and says, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram, in response, gives him a tenth of everything that he had just plundered. And then, Melchizedek is gone. Not to be mentioned again until Psalm 110 in the book of Hebrews. Isn't that incredible? We'll now flip back to Hebrews chapter 7. Because we've answered the question A, who is Melchizedek? But now B, why does that matter? Well, look again at verses 4 to 10. The author says, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these, are, these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him, blessed Abraham who had the promises. Verse 7, It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he, Melchizedek, lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. 
for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So the author highlights three ways in which Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Number one, Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham. Now this has everything to do with the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. Because all the other tribes of Israel paid tithes to the Levites because they were the priests. So the fact that Abraham, who is the literal great-grandfather of Levi and Aaron and the entire Levitical priesthood, paid tithes to Melchizedek. So it highlights that Melchizedek is a greater priest than Abraham. Number two, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Verse 7 makes it clear that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So it highlights that Melchizedek is the superior king. He's a greater king than Abraham, who's already described as the king of kings. He's greater than the king of kings. Then last but not least, number three, Melchizedek lives forever. Verse 8 says, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, meaning men who die, but in the other case, by one Melchizedek, of whom it is testified that he lives. So the former priests always concluded their priesthood. Why? Because they died. (laughs) That's how their priesthood ends. They die because they're mortal. But the Bible says nothing about priests succeeding Melchizedek. Instead, we have Psalm 110 that says Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the author highlights how Melchizedek appears to be eternal. He lives. So essentially, the author is saying, do you really want to attach yourself to a mortal priest because the mortal priest dies? Or do you want to attach yourself, be connected to the priest of God most high, who is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and who's conquered death, resurrected from the grave, and lives forevermore? So why does it matter that Melchizedek is priest of the most high God, king of righteousness, king of peace, and appears to be eternal? Because he points forward. He points forward to the Lord Jesus who is actually a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he is actually eternal and therefore is able to forever intercede on our behalf, which makes all the difference in the world, including giving us an absolutely unshakable hope. But that's going to require some change. Which brings us to number two, a necessary change. If you would follow along as I read verses 11 to 17, the author continues. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now the first question to ask here is why is a change necessary? Well, the answer comes in verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the order of Aaron? So the answer has everything to do with A, our desperate need for perfection. But what exactly does the author mean when he says perfection? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because he's going to use this word perfection over and over again as we move forward, which only helps us to understand what he means when he uses the word perfection. So let's just take a little survey looking forward in Hebrews. We'll start with Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9. What we're trying to do is get the idea 
of what does the author mean by the word perfection. So Hebrews 9, 9. I'm going to read a number of passages here that highlight perfection. 9, 9, the author says, according to this arrangement, talking about the Levitical priesthood, gifts and sacrifices are offered, notice, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. And skip down to verse 14. But how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify or perfect our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Skip forward a little further, chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, notice, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed or perfected, would no longer have the consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a remainder, reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Now, last but not least, Hebrews 10, verse 14. For by a single offering, talking about Christ's death on the cross, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So what does the author mean by perfection? He means the cleansing of your conscience. He means the forgiveness of your sins. He means the reality that you're reconciled to God. That there's ongoing sanctification in your life. That he brings about the holiness that is absolutely necessary for God's people to enter God's presence now and forevermore. So it's crystal clear, isn't it? The Levitical priesthood is inadequate. It's insufficient. It's not going to work. Flip back to chapter 7, verse 11. What does the author say? He says, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? So the Levitical priesthood doesn't work because it cannot, it will not, it will never make us perfect. It doesn't forgive us of sin. It does not provide eternal access into God's presence, which is why, B, there is need for change. And if there's a change in the priesthood, then there necessarily needs to be a change in the law. Look at verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law. He's talking about the law of Moses. A change? In the law of Moses? That's hugely significant, right? I mean, we're not talking about a minor revision to the tax code, right? But a change in how God appoints priests to mediate on man's behalf. And what exactly is the problem with the former law? Well, verses 13 and 14 tell us. Jesus wasn't a Levite. The Mosaic law doesn't speak of anyone but a Levite entering the Holy of Holies and offering sacrifices once a year in God's presence. Instead, Jesus comes from the line, the tribe of Judah. But the law doesn't say anything about a priest coming from the tribe of Judah. So it's unlawful for an Israelite from Judah to serve as a priest. Hence, if there's a change in the priesthood, there must be a change in the law. And what makes that evident? Well, essentially, God declaring it in Psalm 110. Because we do have a priest from another tribe. Jesus is our priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus doesn't fit the mold, doesn't meet the law, not the Old Testament law, doesn't come from the right family, doesn't have the right genealogy, doesn't have the right pedigree. So on the basis of A, the need for perfection, there's B, the need for change. So the Levitical priesthood is no longer in effect because the Old Testament priests are ineffective in what? In making us perfect, right? They're sinners offering sacrifice for other sinners year after year until 
they die, which only leads to an endless succession of priests who don't accomplish anything. They can't make anyone perfect. So what do we need? Well, we need C, an eternal priest. That's what we need. Who can offer a single sacrifice for sin? Meaning once and done. And then can sit down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty where he can ever live to intercede on our behalf. And that's exactly what we find in Jesus. Look at verse 15. The author says, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, so not based on the law of Moses, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, of Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what qualifies Jesus to be our priest? It's not the law. It's not his genealogy. He's, he's from the tribe of Judah. Instead, it's on the basis of his indestructible life, which means it's on the basis of his resurrection from the dead. So the fact that death could not contain him, death could not destroy him, death could not conquer him. Instead, he's alive. Jesus is not here. He has risen. He's alive. And he's eternal. Now let's just pause. Hebrews has got a lot of information, doesn't it? I mean, it's a lot to just take in. So let's just pause. Praise God. Thank you, Pastor Steve. Deep breath, right? It's helpful to take a break. As we pause... I just want you to think for a moment about the original audience. We sit in a very different place than them when they were hearing this. Right? The original audience understood Old Testament worship. They understood the Old Testament priests. Not because they read about them in the Old Testament, but because that's what they were raised on. Right? These are Jewish believers. This is what they've done their entire lives. In fact, many of their family, their family and their friends and their colleagues still believe that, still practice that. They still go to the temple every single day. So they understand how faith in this resurrected Savior, this eternal priest, absolutely transformed their religion into something that can actually save them from their sins. Because his priesthood actually makes them perfect, actually pays for their sins, and actually reconciles them to God. And yet, most, their family, their friends, their colleagues, still reject Jesus. Therefore, reject the salvation and the perfection that only comes through Jesus. So this change, they get it. Change in the priesthood, they get it. Change in the law, they get it. And they understand that this change brings conflict. They experience that firsthand. They know what it's like to be persecuted for their faith. They know what it's like to endure suffering to be publicly reproached, affliction. They had their property stolen from them, plundered. Many experienced being imprisoned without cause. How would we do with that? Prisoned without cause? I have rights. No, they don't care. You're imprisoned. And ho, oh, by the way, in addition, you might be executed. You see, they get it which is what's causing them to be tempted to run back to the old covenant and the old way of doing things, which some of their family, friends, and colleagues are doing as well. And if we go back there, we don't get persecuted. We don't get thrown in prison. We don't get executed. But here's the problem. 
Here's the issue. That doesn't work. If you go back to that, there's no way that that can make you perfect before God. So change is necessary. Change is essential. Change is not optional. And I'm just wondering if you get that this morning. You're no different than them. Your old ways didn't work either. (laughs) And I know that, even though I don't need to know you at all. And I know that because your old ways can't make you perfect any way that my old ways could make me perfect. Your old ways, like my old ways, bring guilt and shame and regret. But in the Lord Jesus, your eternal high priest, you can be forgiven of your sin. Your conscience can be cleansed. You can be reconciled to a holy God. You can be restored in your relationship to him and to others. Because in the Lord Jesus and only in the Lord Jesus, you can be made perfect before a holy God. Which means you can boldly approach his throne. Not on the basis of who you are, but on the basis of what Christ has done. Where you will receive mercy and grace to help you in your greatest time of need. So I appeal to you, recognize your desperate need for change. Change is necessary. Change is essential. And I would argue in this life, change must continue. Continue to acknowledge your sin. Continue to embrace the Lord Jesus, the only one who can make you perfect before God and bring hope and a security that can never be shaken because only in Jesus you can be saved to the uttermost. Which brings us to number three, a secure salvation. Follow along as I read verses 18 to 25. The author continues, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. So to drive home the argument, the author restates what we already know. That the law was weak and it was useless. Now is it useless in every way? Absolutely not. The law is super useful. It's super effective at showing us our sin. Right? Paul says it's a tutor to lead us to Christ, but it's absolutely useless, absolutely ineffective at making us perfect. So the law never produced a holy person, not a single one. Not a holy people, never saved anyone from their sin. The law never accomplished that. It never saved anyone. It just highlighted your sin, which means a better hope is needed. Through the Lord Jesus, who's a better priest who offers a better sacrifice so we can draw near to God. And to lock that down so there's no questions in your mind, but only the certainty of salvation, the guarantee of eternal life, and the glory of dwelling in God's presence for all eternity, God makes a promise. 
that we have an eternal priest and he seals that promise with an oath. Okay, now remember chapter 6, verse 17. Right? We were told that when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it how? With an oath. So when God wants believers to be absolutely convinced, he gives them a promise, but not just a promise. We should be locked down with the promise, but he gives us the promise with an oath. And what's the oath? Well, he tells us. Verse 21, the oath, right? That the Lord has sworn and the Lord will not change his mind. So locked down, never to be changed, absolutely certain, rock solid, immovable, and guaranteed. What is guaranteed? That Jesus is our priest forever. Eternal. And what's the result? Verse 22, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, the author will certainly unpack that more, the better covenant in chapter 8. But what's the better covenant? It's the new covenant given in Jeremiah 31. He's going to quote it in chapter 8. How is the new covenant better? It's better because it actually promises the forgiveness of sins, the hope of eternal life, that God will be merciful towards our iniquities, that he will remember our sins no more that he will put his law on our hearts and in our minds and he will cause us to walk in his ways. And most importantly, that he will be our God and we will be his people. So it's better. Yeah, no kidding. It's way better. Because through Jesus, the new covenant promises to make us perfect. So we have a better priest who offers a better sacrifice on the basis of a better covenant, a better promise, which results in what? a better hope, an incredibly better hope. Look back at Hebrews 6, 19. So sad to be sick last week. I didn't get to preach this, so we're just going to go back to chapter 6 when I get a chance, right? I mean, that's basically what's happening, right? Hebrews 6, 19, look at what it says. We have a sure and steady anchor for our souls, a sure and steady anchor for our souls, a hope, the Lord Jesus, who enters into the inner place behind the curtain, into the very presence of God, and he does so how? As a forerunner on our behalf which means he goes before us. The better priest offers a better sacrifice based on a better promise, which brings about the infinitely better hope of dwelling where? In God's presence for all eternity. You know, I want you to remember where we started this morning and what I said about Woodrow Wilson. Right? President Wilson made an incredible promise in 1916 to keep America out of the war with Germany, right? So he made a promise which brought about an unbelievable hope to many Americans. I mean, they were absolutely thrilled to not go to war. But make the connection. The promise brought about the hope. And yet what happened? Well, things change. Yeah, that's right. Things change. They always change. And a result of things changing, five months later, five months later, President Wilson made a declaration of war. Make the connection. Our promises fail. Why do our promises fail? Because things change. Jesus never changes. Do you see the connection? Jesus never changes. So the promise that Jesus is eternal, that Jesus never changes, brings about an infinitely better hope, an incredibly better hope. See, a better priest, better eternal priest forever brings about a better hope. Look at what the author argues, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented notice. By death. (laughs) That's a change. They were alive and then they died. That's change, right? So, So there's no hope in that because that changes. So 
they were prevented, notice, by death from continuing in office, but comparison, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Here's why that matters. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he ever lives to make intercession for them. That's the upshot. That because Jesus is eternal, and he holds his priesthood forever, for all eternity, he is able to save us forever, for all eternity, or as it says here, to save us to the uttermost, which literally means to save us fully, to save us completely, to save us finally, to save us to the uttermost. When you hear that language, being saved to the uttermost, I want you to picture yourself at the beach. And you love that, right? Because we have snow right now and it's cold, right? This drives me crazy. We live in New England, people. It's going to snow here. I like the snow. I love the snow. We are in New England. It snows in New England, right? And yet many of us are like, I don't like the snow. I don't think you should live in New England, but that's just me. So, in order to take a break from that snow that you've just experienced, like, here's what I'm going to do. Little illustration for you. Picture yourself standing at a beach. If you need to, close your eyes. You're standing at a beach, and you're looking out at the Pacific Ocean. And you're standing there. And you're taking in this big, massive, expansive, unending horizon that's in front of you. That's what I see in my mind's eye when I hear the author say, saved to the uttermost. I see this unending horizon that has a glorious picture of how our salvation is Christ is absolutely comprehensive. Meaning Jesus has done absolutely everything necessary for our salvation. Not only in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, but as our eternal priest who offers a better sacrifice based on a better covenant declared through better promises, which results in an infinitely better hope. Our salvation in Christ is absolutely comprehensive. And it is absolutely eternal. We're saved to the uttermost. Meaning we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved for all time. Jesus holds his priesthood permanently. So because he continues forever, we're saved forever. Which means there will never be a time when we're not saved. And he promises to ensure that because he always lives to intercede on our behalf. Which is incredible. So there will never be a time when he's not standing before God the Father Almighty as our mediator. So there will never be a time when God is not happy with us. I mean, just think about that. That on the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross, God is eternally happy with you. God is never displeased. He's never upset. He's never frustrated. He's never wishing that you were someone else. He's never raising an eyebrow. He's never raising his voice at you. He's eternally pleased. He's eternally for you and eternally happy to help you, to strengthen you, and to uphold you, even in the midst of life's greatest difficulties. And what's the criteria? How do I get all of those glorious promises? Well, he tells you, verse 25, that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. Who gets saved to the uttermost? Those who draw near to God through him. Now, just think again about the original audience. They're being persecuted for their faith. And as a result, they're being tempted to reject Jesus, to return to the old covenant. So the author is trying to help them see. He's trying to persuade them. There's only the hope of salvation in 
Jesus. But if they persevere, if they remain steadfast and immovable, if they continue to draw near to God through Jesus, then he promises, even in the midst of the persecution, even in the midst of the difficulty, that he will always intercede on their behalf, that he will always be their mediator, that he will always plead the merit of his own blood for their eternal well-being, that he will save them. He promises in the difficulty, he promises to save them to the uttermost, comprehensively, eternally, You will have all that you need. I will take care of you now and forevermore. I will make sure in the midst of all of this that's taking place, I will make sure, I will intercede and make sure that you make it all the way home to glory. Can you even imagine a greater certainty than that? In the midst of being publicly ridiculed, having your property plundered, being unjustly imprisoned, daily threat of execution just for being a Christian. In the midst of all that, I guarantee that if you draw near to God through Jesus, he will save you to the uttermost. How helpful is that to you this morning Dear Christian, I recognize we're not currently being in prison. We don't have the daily threat of execution. But I've not met a single person who wasn't going through some sort of trial in their life. Don't you think it's just as helpful for us to know that the Lord Jesus has saved you to the uttermost? that he's intimately acquainted with absolutely everything going on in your life. And he promises that he will always intercede on your behalf. So you too have an eternal high priest, a mediator who literally stands, literally stands in God's presence as a forerunner on your behalf. This picture in your mind's eye, God's eternal courtroom and your name gets called. You got to come up to the front. And you know you're guilty. <laughs> you're not unclear about that. And you walk to the front. There's Jesus. Acting as your defense attorney. Arguing the merits of his own sacrifice. His blood. So that you can not only go free but you go free in God's good graces. Absolutely pleased with you, delighted in you, rejoicing in you for all eternity. Whatever's going on in your life, whatever trial you're facing, whatever problem you're dealing with, whatever person happens to be mad at you during this particular week, You can be certain of this. Jesus promises to save you to the uttermost. So when you wake up feeling unlovable and insignificant, when you feel rejected and unappreciated, when you're thinking your own efforts are pointless and unimportant when sin clouds your judgment and causes you to hide from God rather than to draw near to God. So when hope seems lost and the devil sure seems to be winning, you can know for certain that Jesus promises that he will save you to the uttermost that he will intercede eternally before the Father on your behalf. And in doing so, promises that even in the midst of this, he will strengthen you. He will uphold you. He will cause you to stand steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, no matter how difficult the trial or the tribulation. May we as believers be crystal clear 
that what's required of us is to recognize our need for him so that we are always and forever drawing near to God through him. Because everything after that is what he's doing in and through your life. He will always, forever intercede on your behalf and he promises that he will save you to the uttermost. Allow me to pray to that end. Lord, I pray that you'd give us clarity. We're so grateful for the book of Hebrews. Man, does he argue a point. But I pray that we get it. Help us to get it. Jesus is eternal. He is our high priest. He sacrificed himself so that we could be saved to the uttermost. Lord, I pray for any who are here this morning who are trusting in something other than the Lord Jesus. I pray that they would recognize that change is necessary, that it's essential, that their only hope is in the Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be a people who are constantly, daily drawing near to God through the Lord Jesus. And I pray that we would be strengthened by recognizing we have this glorious promise that he will always forever intercede on our behalf, that he promises that he will save us to the uttermost. And as a result, Lord, I pray that we live our lives with reckless abandon for his glory and his honor and his praise. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.